Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of capital allocators or their firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of capital allocators or podcast guests may maintain positions and securities discussed on this podcast. My guest on today's show is Michael Reese, the founder and head of Dial Capital Partners and co-president of public company Blue Owl after Dial's merger with Alrock last year. Dial is the market leader in buying general partner stakes from established private equity and alternative asset managers and oversees $45 billion in its strategy. Our conversation covers Michael's background, 
the early years of minority stakes, motivations of sellers, changing perceptions of the business, and return profile of investments. We then turn to Dial's process across relationship-driven sourcing, best practices in fundraising and operations, conducting deals, and behavior of GPs after a sale. We close by touching on common critiques of Dial's strategy and the outlook from here. Before we get going, have you noticed that airline travel takes a lot longer these days? Security lines go on as far as the eye can see, and that's even with pre-check clear or the pre-check clear combo. And flights seem to get delayed regularly for no apparent reason. Well, the next time you have even an inkling of a delay, and long before you have to board, deboard, board again, and sit on the tarmac for an hour before you leave, might I suggest you fill that idle time with successive episodes of Capital Allocators? By the time your plane leaves, you'll have gotten through at least two or three amazing episodes and probably made friends with your equally frustrated neighbor in the seat next to you who may not have had the benefit of listening until you tell them to. Make a new friend, productively pass the time, and find your way around the world smarter than you started. Thanks for spreading the word. Please enjoy my conversation with Michael Reese. Michael, great to see you. Ted, good to see you as well. Well, why don't we start with your background? You can go all the way back to diapers. Doesn't matter to me where you start. <laughs> well, you know, if you want diapers, it starts in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hopefully, over the course of our chat today, you'll hear some good Steelers stories. Born and raised there, went to school there at the University of Pittsburgh, and then hopped up to Boston, where I studied engineering at MIT. Was an engineer through and through and figured I'd spend my entire career at Alcoa or uh, somewhere in the mechanical engineering ward of some big company. And then while up in Boston in, in 1999, all of the, quote, really smart kids started going into the dot-com world. And that left us lowly engineers with these great interviews for, you know, this company called Goldman Sachs and McKinsey. And <laughs> it was amazing. You know, I had never heard of it. I thought, well, that probably can't be as good as Alcoa or uh, Eaton Cutler Hammer, but I'll try this interview out. So it was a, one of those really unique times. There's a lot of luck and timing in anybody's career arc. And it just so happened that engineers got a a knock up on the pecking order in the 1999 timeframe. And I was able to use that to get into finance. So where did you start? I started at a, a financial consulting firm called Maricon Associates. And it was pitched to me as McKinsey with a lot more numbers. And I figured, you know, <laughs> like I said, with a mechanical engineering background, it spoke to me. So had a great run, worked inside a lot of banks and really looking at how they were structured and, and what a financial services company was. And then was asked by a friend to give corporate development a try over at Lehman Brothers. And so went over there, had a great a uh, group I worked for. And at that time, Lehman Brothers was looking to acquire a bunch of things in money management. And so had a, a full-time job for uh, eight or nine years, looking at acquisitions of all sorts across traditional asset management, uh, hedge funds, private equity, and the like. So fell into something in 2002, and it's really been the wind behind my sales since then. What were those early deals that you looked at at Lehman? 
Oh, we wanted to start with the fund of hedge fund world. So we really dug in there. We figured alternatives was a wave of growth. And, you know, I guess that's an understatement now looking backwards 20 years. And we thought the safest way to start was a fund of hedge funds, get our, our sea legs in the, in the hedge fund space, but not by picking one, by having a more institutional approach. And so we looked around, we looked at everything. I think we looked at K2, at Mizero, at Grosvenor, all a lot of great conversations. And, and when you're doing M&A, going down a process with someone is an educational experience. And so we really got to learn a lot about the industry, even though a number of those didn't get to the finish line. And ultimately, we, we set upon a joint venture where we threw half of the team in from Lehman Brothers. And then we brought in some very experienced hedge fund investors at a, at a law firm boutique called Aaron Krantz and Aaron Krantz. And so that really got us going and was the first brick that we put on the ground way back then. And what were some of those other bricks? Well, the biggest brick, it's probably a lot of bricks, was a public company called Newberger Berman. And so that became the vast majority of what was Lehman Brothers asset management effort. We bought a, a fixed income business called Lincoln Capital in Chicago and a number of things in alternatives, but sort of swept it all together. And, and that's what ultimately was Lehman's asset management arm that was part of the management buyout post-bankruptcy that ultimately became Newberger Berman and where we launched the dial business. But really, as part of that whole long arc of acquisitions, every time we did one of these minority stakes in hedge funds, we started with GLG, and then we did a firm called Marble Bar and Osprey and DE Shaw. We were doing a lot of work in a lot of other areas, and these 20% stakes in hedge funds were paying the bills. The mailbox <laughs> was full of checks from these guys, and and the management team at Lehman said, what are we doing for all these big checks? And it turns out we didn't have to do anything. We had to be a passive minority partner and, and sit and wait and collect checks. So that's how the whole genesis of the idea started and, and how we got thinking about how you could participate in the economics of, of the hedge fund industry without owning and controlling a hedge fund outright. What happened with the strategy evolving from hedge funds where today you see a lot more of them in private markets? We started buying minority stakes in hedge funds because the cash on cash return was so attractive. The multiples were low and you could make your money back in four or five years and have a really nice return in six or seven, even if the business wasn't a platform. It wasn't going to be institutional because remember sort of late 90s, the two biggest hedge funds in the world, Tiger and Soros, literally turned their lights off on a Friday afternoon at 5 p.m. and the enterprise had no value. So it wasn't a logical statement back then that you could say, we're going to invest in a hedge fund because this thing's going to be around for 30 years. The obvious response would be the two best firms just literally turned out overnight. So what really happened was we had to look at it on a cash-on-cash basis and getting the money back quickly. And given the fast growth and the average performance of the high-quality firms in the industry, it even exceeded our underwriting expectations. So a dollar went in the ground. By year three or four, you already had a dollar fifty, And by year six or seven, you had more than that. And so that's what the model was and even was the foundation for Dial One. Get your money in the ground to a really good firm not the biggest firm out there, somebody who had a little bit of growth left in them, participate in the management fee growth and what had been unbelievably consistent returns. 
We underwrote that every hedge fund could get 8 to 10% net every year. A bad year was 8, a good year was 12, and that was it. What started happening as we sort of moved into the middle and end of dial 1, 2010, 11, and 12, was that some of those return dynamics started to change in the industry. And as we all recall, 8% wasn't promised to anyone, and certainly a downside of 6 was not the likely case. So we had to start thinking about the model and was there a place in alternatives where there was real institutional value being created and in true enterprise, something that you could own for longer than the period of time before the person turned the lights out? Now, I think the hedge fund industry has shown that a number of organizations have real longevity and that there would have been money to be made sticking with hedge funds. We just saw a lot more of an institutional drive really led by investors, but also a willingness of the private markets firms to start thinking about institutionalizing their platform and making them more of an enterprise. We saw more of that in private equity, in real estate, infrastructure, et cetera. So the market sort of pushed us from the hedge fund space more into private markets because it's where the longevity lies. How do you think about the return profile of what you get back, right? So in the hedge fund world early on, it was cash on cash and presumably really low multiples if you're talking about 25% cash on cash. There's enterprise value, there's cash flow, there's carry in these businesses. How do you model out what an investor in Dial thinks about in terms of what their returns would be? From an underwriting perspective, we still use that original lens of cash on cash returns. We certainly don't get the type of cash-on-cash returns that we got back then in the hedge fund space with 25% yields, but we really think about it from an underwriting perspective as how long till we can get our money back, how long until we can make a private equity-like return, and those are cash-based. We do believe that there is enterprise value at the end of the rainbow here, but we don't want to underwrite a sale. We don't want to underwrite that we can achieve that, that value. We want our investors to think about this as a long-dated cash flow stream that will be very attractive for them. And if we can unlock an enterprise value exit, then we've got some ideas around that. But if we can, it's going to be upside. So we can get investors a private markets-like return that is cash flow-based, but much smoother, earlier out of the gate, no J-curve. So it has a really attractive return dynamic because we still keep that original cash-on-cash mentality. How has the reception of the business changed over time? The ownership of a minority stake has changed so much in 20 years. You look back, you know, it was a darn near four-letter word in the 2000 era when a big, bad institution like Lehman Brothers or Morgan Stanley or Merrill Lynch bought a 20% stake in a firm. And you spent all your time thinking about how to minimize the, the impact, minimize the client disruption, minimize the disruption with the company and truly be arm's length. And that was important. Most of the investors back then were endowments and foundations. They had 
purist models. So we started by really tiptoeing into it and being extra cautious around how it was perceived by the market. And then you look 20 years later and the market has come to accept that it is a it's a stamp of approval. It's an institutional endorsement for a large investment to come in that adds scalability and stability to the firm. It allows them to really do the things that it takes to become a longstanding institutional platform. It didn't happen overnight. It took 20 years, but it went from being something that we really put our head in the sand when we did one of these deals and hoped no one reacted negatively to something that now has become a mainstay in the industry and is is quite positive. So let's dive into that concept a little bit. Easy to think 20 years ago when you started doing this that the perception of the seller was just a cash out. Yeah, and, and air quotes, cash out are the two words that I detest the most because most of these deals have a strategic logic to them that is quite important. And and particularly the private markets ones over the last decade, we could come to those. It probably was more of a cash out trade vis-a-vis the hedge fund industry 15, 20 years ago because the motivation was really a tax arbitrage. And a hedge fund that is trading relatively actively is going to generate mostly short-term gains. And that will pay in New York City a 50% tax rate. And the management fee profits are also at 50%. So if you could convert that to long-term capital gains by selling a forward slice of that, you could reduce your tax rate by approximately half. And so while there was not a huge or compelling strategic logic for the hedge fund deals 15 or 20 years ago, there was a financial tax motivation. And so maybe it didn't have the the positive halo effect back then, and maybe the cash out description was more fitting. But as the time evolved, there became needs for additional capital, really growth capital in these industries. And the last decade, in particular, the last six or seven years has been marked by really providing growth capital to a growth industry and allowing these firms to continue to grow and solidify their platform by having additional permanent capital. So it's been a long arc, but I think luckily now the market has realized there's a huge strategic value to bringing on passive capital like the business we provide. What are some of the use cases for that growth capital? Well, I always tell the story about Bain Capital. I give them credit. In just shortly after the financial crisis, there were questions around skin in the game from the perspective of investors. And investors were saying, you know, your performance of the industry hasn't been that good through this cycle. And so how do I know you're in it? How do you, as these firms get bigger and bigger, how do I know you're focused on my money and you're not focused on management fees? And so the response from Boston up at Bain was, we're going to put a billion dollars into this next fund. And that really reverberated through the industry. And there probably hasn't been since that time an investor meeting where a question wasn't asked, well, how much skin are you going to have in the game? What is your GP commitment? And so as we embarked on this really nice growth trend from 2010 through today, as funds got bigger, as the GP commitments got larger, and as the funds came faster, there became a strategic need for GP capital. 
And that's really the void that we stepped into and filled. As these firms did get bigger, they were using up a lot of capital. And and that's been the major use case for almost all of the capital that's gone in the ground over the last decade. There are there are secondary use cases. Of course, there are there are times when we're buying out a retired partner or a set of retired partners. One of our larger GP relationships made a large acquisition of a secondaries platform. So you do have other other use cases, but the vast majority is to fuel this this bane initiated alignment that has turned into an arms race of having a lot of skin in the game and having a larger GP commitment, which I ultimately think is really good for investors and why if there is still any negative stigma left, we can do a pretty good job of describing why a firm has much more alignment with an investor after one of these deals than before, just due to the larger GP commitment that they can afford with this growth capital. What are you seeing as, say, critiques on GP deals today? Well, I don't want to dodge the question, but when you look back at what the pushback entailed 20 years ago, most likely led by the Ivies, who said, I want my alternative managers to be the following. I want them to be 100% owned. I want them to stay small. I want them to be single product, et cetera, et cetera. And so that was the pushback then. Why are you taking capital in? Are you going to grow? Are you going to add new products, et cetera, et cetera? And so clearly, over time, that set of objections has gone away because just about every investor out there works with Blackstone. They work with large firms that are not 100% employee owned. They're not single product. They're not small. So the ethos of what type of GP you want to partner with has changed over 20 years. And so we don't have to really combat that original set of objections. I guess even today you get the cash out word thrown around and there's a question around what what an organization is going to use the capital for. If we write an $800 million check, investors will want to know, where is this going and how does it benefit me or, or even how does it not hurt me? And so when we and our partners really lay out the use of proceeds and say, look, of that 800, 400 of it's going to go into the next fund right alongside you, Mr. and Mrs. Investor. 200 of it's going to go here and the other 200 is going to go there. And they see that this is good This is making a more stable organization. This is providing longevity. I think the pushback quickly subsides. But that's been a gratifying arc that over a lot of deals and a lot of consistent messaging, most of the the stigma and the, the boogeyman aspect has left the system. So I'd love to walk through your investment process. And maybe we start with just sourcing these things. How do you get to the point where you're ready to sit down at the table and do a deal? Well, we've seen probably two or 3,000 flip books from private markets firms. And I don't think there's one that we've seen that doesn't have the old sourcing funnel in it. And that you see you know, 5,000 deals we saw and 200 we did and whatever that funnel looks like. We're the only firm that, at least to my knowledge, that doesn't have a funnel. <laughs> we never, ever let go of a opportunity. Because firms change and evolve over time, 
and people move around the industry. So we're constantly talking to the top 250 firms in the alternative space, talking to them about their business, understanding their goals and objectives. And there are some conversations that we have that we know at the beginning of the hour, this isn't going to be a deal that we're going to do anytime soon, but it doesn't mean it falls through the bottom of our funnel never to be found again. So we continuously travel the world. Luckily, most firms are in the top five or six cities, which we can all think of. And we just really build long-term relationships talking about what it means to run a firm, what it means to run an enterprise. And we offer help. We offer guidance. We tell them that a deal might not be imminent. It might not be for two, three years or seven, eight years. And in a number of cases now, we've been doing it for long enough. We are actually consummating deals that started with a coffee 10 years ago. So it's great to see that avoid the funnel mentality. Don't throw out any conversation and just build really long-term relationships. It's good to see that coming home to roost with really a fantastic opportunity set that lies ahead of us. So you mentioned the top 250 firms. Is there an implication there that you're looking for large firms? Yeah, the dial business has focused in private markets on the largest. We we had a hypothesis and a view in 2015 that the big were going to get bigger and the strong were going to get stronger. And it looks really uh, smart in the rearview mirror, at least through the last seven years. I do think there is good consolidation at the top. And I do think the larger firms are going to take share over the bottom of the pyramid. More Investors in this space are larger government institutions and sovereigns, et cetera, and they really prefer the type of service that you get from the bigger firms in the industry. And so as incremental flows come from those big guys, we really see it concentrating on the top 250. There aren't many peers or even competitors for what we do, but they typically focus on firms that are a notch smaller, maybe favoring growth, et cetera. We, we still believe that the growth dynamics are more attractive at the larger end of the market, but we certainly think the stability is much stronger and the longevity is going to be much stronger for the larger firms. One of our newest and strongest relationships with CVC, I mean, that machine's going to be around for a long time. We're proud to be partners. And that's the kind of firm that you would have never had the opportunity, particularly on the hedge fund side, to say there's real enterprise value there. You look at a firm like CVC just as one example, and you, you really see something that's going to last. So these private market firms... They have long duration capital. It's locked up. They're never going to shut the lights off overnight the way hedge funds. How are you thinking today about some of the larger hedge fund firms? Well, I think we've seen some of the larger hedge fund firms turn into really stable organizations. A lot of them, though, have decided that there is real value in having locked up capital. So they're moving more towards the private market side sort of day in and day out. There aren't many of what we would have called scaled liquid hedge funds in the year 2002 that exist today in a similar fashion. They're much more institutional. They make longer term bets if they are at this scale. And in a number of them have migrated their capital to be more more long dated. We've always talked about the blurring of alternatives and hard to really describe what is a hedge fund anymore. I think that will continue. And I think some of the bigger platforms will want to do more with their clients and do it across the liquidity spectrum. So I'd love to get under the covers a little bit of what these 
conversations of offering help and guidance are like with these people you're interacting with? What do you see that you're helping them see? Well, we came from that DNA that we wanted to do no harm and stay as far away from these firms as possible. Remember, that's where it started (laughs) 20 years ago. So tiptoeing into the strategic partner definition was not one that was overnight, and it certainly wasn't easy. But we actually got more of a pull from our alternative partners saying, hey, you guys see a lot. You you sit across a number of these firms. Can you help us in certain areas? So as we really launched Dial, we decided we were going to have dedicated professionals that would come in every day and only think about making the relationship with our partners as strategic as possible. So they don't work day-to-day on the new investments. They get together week in and week out with our partners and work on the things that make those institutions stable and add longevity. So it's been an evolution. It's been a long arc. But at this point, we have a number of professionals, 40 to 50 and even growing professionals on our business services team that are making these relationships strategic. Now, you asked, what's it like sitting down and talking to these founders about it? Most are pretty accepting of the advice that we give. We do have an amazing vantage point, and we've talked to just about every large firm and successful firm out there. So they do think that and believe that we have credibility in adding strategic value. Now, they often also come to these deals more seeking the capital than the advice. So I think it's one of those things where if you ask them at T0, what are your motivations for this relationship? I think it's 99% capital, 1% advice. And I think when you ask them a year, two, three into it, I think they say they would have they would have had that skew wrong. They would, in hindsight, they're getting really good advice. It may not be the type of advice that will be a game changer for an organization and really change the the arc of a firm, but across a number of different areas and a number of different levels within the organization, our teams are interacting and adding really positive momentum and best-in-class advice to the people at our partner organization. So we've gotten really good feedback. It was a whiteboard idea in 2009. Many people said, hey, they want your money, just shut up and that's it. And so it's gratifying now to hear our partners tell each other, did you ever imagine that you'd get this type of a relationship from the dial team? What are some examples of that advice that's resonated with some of your partner firms? Yeah, we break it down across about six or seven areas. You know, really, fundraising is still the the $64,000 question for every organization. You could probably count on one hand the types of firms that can snap their fingers and hit their hard cap. So we're out there across three different areas helping them raise capital. One, we've got a big team that has institutional relationships. Think of it as almost cap intro, but much more focused on our partners and, and a longstanding relationship that lasts many, many, many years. So we help them with institutional clients. We also have a great team that helps them navigate the wealth channel which is a huge part of fundraising these days. How do you get on the private banks, the wirehouses, the RIAs? And so a lot of firms, even big ones, are tiptoeing into this space for the first time. And we can be really value creating there. And then consultants from the dawn of the industry, consultants have played a major role. And so we have professionals that help them 
really navigate and get to understand the the nuances of the consultant landscape. So we always say about half of the advice comes in the form of helping the fundraising team and the and management hit their objectives in fundraising. The other pillars are really interesting and they evolve over time. We have a new effort clearly that's important and changing in ESG and DEI. All organizations want to know what's best in class and, and we're supporting them there. And then in my mind, one of the more exciting pillars that we have is our new data science effort. So there are a lot of sources of alternative data and it's not really economical or efficient for even the largest firms that we're partnered with to have their own data science team. A few do, but most of them are leaning on our team, which is growing. We're spending a lot of money on data. We have some extremely bright people that can help an investment team really parse out things that is, it's amazing to me, a little bit frightening that you could tell that certain people go for coffee of a certain type right after they work out and not before and yada, yada. It's all, it's all there in the credit card data and your phone data. So you got to be careful uh, what you're putting out there. But man, our team is using it to good use, helping our partners with their, their decision-making. And so that data science effort has been quite exciting to see it get to scale. And, and the feedback that we're getting from our partners is great. So it's capital ESG data science. What are those other pillars? Well, there's talent. Of course, we help identify great candidates for certain C-suite roles. We help our partners with organizational design. Come November, December, we're always helping with comp benchmarking. So talent is a, is a big part of it as well. And then operations, tech, infrastructure, just good old-fashioned blocking and tackling that your COO and your CTO at a large firm would love to lean on. There's so much to running one of these large institutions these days. If any of them want to go out and put in a new system X, it's probably likely that our team has interviewed everybody in the space that does that and can get you to third base pretty quickly without, without wasting too much time. So you have these conversations regularly with these partners. At some point in time, a conversation might lead to a potential deal. When you then are doing due diligence and get under the covers of these businesses and the financials, what's been most surprising to you? Well, it's not something we like to shout from the rooftops. And I guess here I am shouting it from the rooftops, but these businesses can be extremely profitable. I think the old adage that the management fees keep the lights on, I think that's a good motto. I'm not sure how accurate it is. (laughs) I think what we've seen is for the bigger firms, there is an ability to generate really good profitability, which generates longevity and stickiness because you can incentivize a broader team, bring more individuals into the ownership broaden out the carry base. And you know you see that from the very top on down, the sort of Blackstones and KKRs of the world have realized that scale has a huge benefit. And I think that doesn't just extend to the, the 10 to 12 public companies. It goes across the next 100 or 200 as well. There's a real benefit and advantage to the resources that you have as an organization at scale. What does the pricing environment look like these days for some of these deals? Well, we benefit from being in a really small sandbox, which has two peers that we see most often. And we like to think we're on one side of the sandbox and they're on the other side. And so in our world where we've done 
I want to say 19 of the 22 deals above 600 million of check size. So we have a, a high 80s percent market share. We really don't see pricing dynamics that move around a lot. When you know things were going crazy and there was unbelievable excitement in late 2020 and 2021, our valuations were pretty consistent with what they had been for the prior five years. As the you know things start to shift here in the middle of 2022, we're not really seeing much change. And so I think it all goes back to our sourcing mentality of building these long relationships, being there for an organization at the time that makes most sense for them. It's not a trade. They're not t- trying to time the market. We're not trying to time the market. And I think it adds a really high degree of consistency to the type of valuation parameters we see. And there's not a lot different from our first deal with Providence and Vista 2013 and 15 to our you know most recent deal this summer. So we benefit from a real divergence in terms of the amount of available capital, which there isn't a lot, and a number of really good partners that want a sizable amount of capital. So we can pretty much keep a uh, consistent approach to valuation irrespective of what's going on in the market. How do the fluctuations of the public company multiples impact these conversations about valuation in the private market? Yeah, we have a chart that shows the average multiple of the public companies, the Blackstones, Apollos, KKRs, and it's like a mountain peak. It goes up, it jags around, it goes sideways, it comes down. And all the while, the valuations that we're paying for private markets firms are very consistent and flatlining across it. So maybe at times we're not getting as big of a discount where the public firms are trading, but there are times when we're getting tremendous discount. We just think the intrinsic value of these firms firms is significant. And because of the the lack of available capital in the space, we're able, knock on wood, to generate really good risk-adjusted returns for our clients by, by utilizing this pricing dynamic. So once you conduct a deal, as you've done with you know, 19 large ones and a bunch of others, there's a premise going in that this is not, let's use the evil words, cash out. There's a lot more growth capital. What have you seen in the behavior of the founders across the deals that you've done from the day that that deal closes onwards? We're often asked a funny question. Are you responsible for the growth? Are you pushing these firms? And if you knew most of the founders that we've done deals with, you would clearly see that we can't push anybody. That's not a group that's easily pushed. But there is a typical growth curve that comes really at either the time of our relationship or shortly thereafter, because the whole reason for providing this growth capital is because this firm has a view that they're going to do something with it. So whether it's, you know, launch, if they're a large cap buyout firm, launch a mid cap fund, which has been a wildly successful strategy across the industry, perhaps evolving into credit or even just utilizing some capital to make the team more stable and perhaps make the team a little more forward leaning. All of those things typically result in a little more of a growth inflection point than you would see for your average firm in the industry. So I think the biggest thing we see after is a little more focus on being opportunistic and building a business that has more than one leg to the stool. And I think that's good for our investors and been a reasonable hallmark of what we do. 
Is there a differentiation today when you do a deal, given the size of the firms compared to 20 years ago, in the impact on the founders of getting this windfall of capital? I don't really see a impact on the founders. And in a lot of ways, the money goes into the business or into the capital accounts of a number of people, a number of professionals at the firm, and isn't sort of in the bank account. It's going into the ground, not coming out of the firm. Another reason the cash out descriptor doesn't really fit. So in most cases, the bank account movement for most of these professionals doesn't happen day one. They believe that over time, it will be value creating for them. They'll build a a bigger franchise, they'll have additional products, and they'll be able to put more of their own money in the ground next to investors. So the 10-year bank account impact might be meaningful, but the day one is typically underwhelming. You mentioned having two competitors on the other side of your sandbox. You also have IPOs as an option for a lot of these firms. You've had other aggregators of asset managers in the private fund space. How does competition, as you mentioned, you're sort of, you've done 19 of the 22 large deals. So how do you sense competition, not just from another capital provider, but also the public markets in the eyes of some of these GPs? Well, I see this humbly. And if Andy Grove were sitting next to us, he'd slap me. I don't feel day-to-day competition. We sort of do what we do. We build these long-term relationships And, you know, while a GP, a sponsor will talk to others, it's kind of like dating. It's not like you're standing there ready to propose to one person and you might change your mind a half hour later. These are longstanding relationships. We come with a tremendous amount of capital that we can meet all their needs, not just on day one, a number of our partners have come back to us a couple years after and said, can we do a second deal or even a third deal? So we want to be that type of long-term spouse that isn't subject to a, a one-week auction where we may come in second or third. These are, these are really relationships that for the most part we've built over time, and I don't feel the sense of competition. Now, the competitive effort that we have to put into the the business is that we need to keep these relationships fresh. We need to be out there. We can't rest on our laurels. So that's where the competition comes in. So when we talk about the dial product, how do you think about portfolio construction within a particular vintage fund? We really don't lead with portfolio construction. We don't say that this fund is going to have two buyout firms and two real estate, et cetera, because that sort of forces you into a an unnatural position where you have to go out and find somebody at a given time, even if they're not ready or if they're not as high quality as you would want. So we really focus on those longstanding conversations with the best firms that we think are going to be around for a long time. And if it shades a fund of ours towards one sector or another, then we're okay with it. Of course, we put limits on it. We don't want to end up with 25 VC firms in a fund, but it doesn't necessarily ever happen that way. It's been a nice blend. And we had a few people and clients that would start our quarterly reviews with, tell me about those those energy firms you invested in. Those aren't looking too good. Well, 
Now they're looking great. So there is always the proverbial, the only free lunch out there is diversification. There's a benefit to having a little bit of everything. And if we're, if we know we're partnering with the better firms or even the best firms in their relevant segment, then we're comfortable that they'll see their way through different cycles and what was energy at the bottom of the periodic table a few years ago is flipped to the top, just like growth was at the top back then and is now getting the ire of certain parts of the market. So it's hard to think of it as a portfolio construction exercise. It's more a focus on partnering with the best. As the biggest, baddest game in town, how do you think about exit strategy? Well, we don't. That, I think, is what's critical. And as you think about what's unique and what has really kept growth in this segment to a modest level, it's the fact that we have to raise permanent capital vehicles. There aren't many other vehicles out there across the industry that are like this. We look like a private equity fund on the way in. We get commitments from investors. We call capital to do deals, but we never plan on selling a partnership or ending a partnership. And we really don't ever have a way for investors to elect to redeem. There's not a redemption term. So many of our investors, the insurance companies, the pensions, the sovereigns, they think about this as a very long dated cash flow stream. So a lot of them think about it that way. Now, I then swallow hard and I pause and I say, but we don't think every investor wants to be in this fund forever. And so there are a number of different tools in our toolkit that we have used and will continue to use to get capital back to our LP partners, our investor partners. And those include taking on a little bit of debt and paying a dividend recap. We have seen a number of our partners, not really led by us, but a number of sales and exits that have happened on an individual basis. I guess the, the holy grail out there is the potential for a public listing of a component or perhaps all of our partner managers. So we think there's a really interesting business where a public shareholder, instead of having to pick an investment in one alternative firm can get exposure to a number of slightly smaller but specialist types firms across the industry. So we're not sure exactly when that'll be, but we continue to work on it. And at the right time, we think a, a public listing of a portfolio of these partnerships will be really attractive to the market. When someone thinks of investing in one of your funds, how do they compare that risk-reward profile with one of investing in a series of underlying managers? Well, it was hard at the beginning because they had no way of thinking about it. There was no track record and they had to come to some conclusion. Why would I not just keep doing what I'm doing, investing in funds? What is this GP stakes thing? I think we demonstrated through, sometimes through a lot of analysis and sometimes just through our historical performance that owning at the GP can be a very attractive thing. And it's hard to model a portfolio of LP interests, investing in funds that will outperform a portfolio of investing in stakes. You don't have to look too far at all the wealth that's been created by the owners of these firms to realize this is a good side of the table to sit on. And a lot of investors have recognized that. No one said, I'm going to make 100% of my alternative allocation into GP stakes. But a number of them have said, particularly once they have a a mature portfolio, you know what? I'm going to take a small allocation and I want to come to the other side of the table where I'm receiving fees. 
I'm receiving carry and be aligned with the the very firms that I'm giving money to every year. So it's been also gratifying to see that transition happen over time. So what pushback do you get for people who look at what you're doing and decide not to invest? Oh, it's always about the duration. If we would have just said, this is a 10-year fund, our lives would have been so much easier. Um, <laughs> I'm glad we didn't because here we sit, uh, you know, fund one being about 10 years old and we would have this unnatural position where we would have to, quote, wrap it up. So we didn't do that. We stuck to our knitting, but it's made fundraising harder. There are still, to this day, many organizations, many investors that do not have an ability to invest in a, quote, permanent capital vehicle. And so while it was tempting to say, okay, fine, it's a 10-year fund, we've held out and that's worked to our advantage. Number one, because we raised the capital we wanted to. Number two, it kept a lot of people out. This industry, and you, you hear a funny quote from time to time that's becoming a saturated industry. They're, like I said, in the sandboxes ourselves and two other players and a few others that are trying, but there've been a lot who have tried and haven't succeeded. And so it's far from saturated. It's probably the one area of private markets where there's the biggest opportunity compared to the fewest number of competitors, perhaps, like I said, in any space in alternatives. What about the well-known phrase, size is the enemy performance, and that GPs will be less motivated after they make money? I'm curious what you've seen in the performance of all the funds you've bought stakes in after they've done a transaction with you. Yeah, if I had more downtime, I would really dig into the literature that's out there, particularly certain parts of the academic community, about the underperformance of firms as they get larger. It's one of those almost impossible topics to study because of survivorship bias. There aren't a lot of firms that did poorly when they were small that somehow got to be large. So you have a whole part of your data set that just doesn't exist. But that being said, I mean, I think certainly firms typically had better multiple of money performance on their fund two and their fund three when it was 500 million and a billion than when you're managing 20 billion euros. So I think it's just a different part of the market you're playing in and, and a different objective. What also happens is your investor mix shifts. So there still are a lot of investors that want to find the new firm that is at fund two or three and really think they can outperform by identifying this business that is earlier in their growth phase. But from a dollar perspective, there are many more investors that are very happy partnering with the larger firms. They may not get the best vintage in that firm's life. Turns out in the last few years they have, which has been remarkable, that while there was this prevailing wisdom that as firms got bigger, the returns would suffer, the last several years was antithetical to that. That will have to funnel its way through the academic literature and see what, what shakes out there. But there has been a benefit to scale of late that doesn't necessarily fit with history. All that being said, I think different investors want to be at different parts of the growth curve focusing on smaller, medium-sized, and larger firms. And I just think for us as a GP partner, we want to be with the larger managers in the space just because of the longevity and stability. And what do you think the future growth for the strategy looks like? Well, even if you just look at the top 250 firms, the organic growth in those firms is outpacing the ability of us and our two peers to raise capital. 
So we're becoming a smaller part of the industry every day, which is amazing because people look at it on a name basis and say, oh, of the top 100 firms in the industry, I'm picking a number 50 have done one of these deals and say, well, we're approaching saturation. What that doesn't recognize is the fact that you can do another deal and a third deal with these very same organizations. And you have a lot of firms that may have been below that threshold that jump up above a certain size level over time. So we keep seeing larger and larger opportunities every single day. All right, Michael, I can't let you go without asking a couple of fun closing questions. Uh Uh-oh. What's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? Oh, man. I wish I had more hobbies, but my my hobbies right now are work and watching the kids play sports. I I love sports. I love, uh, certainly I love my family. And so when I have any free time, I spend it on some sort of sideline. I used to coach. I don't know whether my time availability or my skill set was outstripped, but I'm now an avid spectator watching the kids play. What's your biggest investment pet peeve? Well, my biggest investment pet peeve is one where we try to avoid it at all costs here. When someone makes an investment decision after tons and tons of work, but based on something they knew at the beginning, it's okay to walk into a process either utilize your counterparty's time, your team's time. It's okay to burn the clock when you're learning things. And if you come to a conclusion at the end of it that it's not a deal you want to do, that's fine. But you shouldn't burn clock on something you knew at the beginning. And that by far is my biggest pet peeve. It comes in the in the deal-making part of the market. It also comes from investors and their diligence of our fund. Please, you knew this was a stakes fund at the beginning. Please don't tell us at the end of the process that you can't invest because you don't do stakes funds. So. <laughs> Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? I think the two people that I credit with just being amazing professionals, one, Erin Callen, she was a banker that I worked with at Lehman Brothers and the best combination of intellect and relationship capabilities of any professional I've ever seen. So it taught me that having that two-prong approach, knowing your stuff is important, but the relationship angle is equally as important. And I thought, Aaron, it was truly the pinnacle of those two areas. And then Tony Tutrone at Newberger Berman, absolutely a fantastic professional. He is laser focused on every single investment that goes through that place. And just watching him manage a team, manage a portfolio, give his team the type of, quote, leash that they need to develop their skills, but also be there as a sound mentor and guiding force throughout. I think that I've learned a tremendous amount from Tony and I'm eternally grateful for my time with him. What type of investment do you gravitate to like a moth to a flame? Oh, the banker in me gravitates towards every investment. That's the problem. (laughs) My team, we've now added some people that are a little more negative, but when you put a team of bankers in a room, man, everything seems like a deal that can be done. It can be structured. We can find a way. So I'm glad our team has evolved now to have a few more naysayers where the few of us that have banking in our background would still be trying to get every single deal across the goal line. What are your biggest blind spots? I think a blind spot is one that changes throughout your career depending on your level. 
at an early age or early part of my career, I thought everything came out of Excel. There's nothing to a deal that couldn't fit into a cell in Microsoft Excel. And so that was a huge blind spot. But I feel like to at least to succeed and get to the next level of your career, you have to sort of put some of those blind spots away. I think right now, you know, in this position running dial, the blind spot is figuring out what the next part of the market looks like, what the next cycle looks like, and how we want to position ourselves. There were really difficult unknowns when the market was ripping, and there are certainly unknowns now that we face headwinds. I think adjusting and adapting to what lies ahead is is the job of a leader. I take that responsibility humbly, and I've got a great team that I'm proud that has been really adaptive over time. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? Oh, coming from Pittsburgh and a family that really, we prided ourselves on a Steelers work ethic in everything we did. And my parents were extremely hardworking. We got up Saturday morning, we cut the grass, we trimmed the hedges, we painted the house. You know, it was the kind of approach to life that, you know, nothing was handed to you. And so here we are fortunate to be enjoying a relative degree of success here with this business. It's trying to instill in myself and the team that we can't let it go to our heads. We have to be humble. We're still minority partners, so we're always looking up to the owners, the founders, the controllers. They're the show. We're the sideshow. And I think to keep humble, to stay humble and be be a really attractive minority passive partner is something that takes a little bit of uh, blue-collar roots. And it's no surprise that when you look across the team complexion here in the GP stakes business, there isn't a heavy leaning towards the Ivy League. We have a couple of really smart people, don't get me wrong, that had some tremendous academic backgrounds. But we also have a lot of people that that have worked their way up from schools where a number of organizations don't go to recruit. They found their way here the hard way and, and have done a really great job here at the firm. All right, Michael, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? I'm going to change the question a little bit, if you don't mind. The life lesson I haven't yet learned is when to not talk. I think the life lesson I haven't learned is when to know when to be quiet. So I'm still working on it. I like to have a point of view and and probably there's all of those bumper stickers and all of the adages from your parents about be a good listener first. I'm still working on that. Michael, thanks so much for sharing your insights. Thanks, Dad. It's been fun. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one, and see you next time. 